would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of John. John chapter 17. I want to read in your hearing verse 6 down to verse 15. Our Lord Jesus, in His prayer, He says, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You, for I have given them the words You gave Me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This morning we come on to further consider, consider this prayer of our Lord Jesus. Last week we centered our concerns upon the people for whom this prayer was prayed. I gave you my understanding, my conclusion, that the text seems to tell us it was the immediate disciples who remained with Jesus in the upper room. These men that we know as his apostles, these ones who would be his special emissaries, his special ambassadors and representatives who would bring the gospel to the world and play a major part and the founding of the new covenant church. These who would establish the gospel through their preaching and also through their written words we find in the canonical New Testament scriptures. I gave you also last week a basic outline of prayer concerns in this passage, the things for which Jesus prayed, not only those for whom he prayed, and um, you see it in your bulletin. Uh, The major pivots are he prayed for their safety, their solidarity, their strength, and their sanctity. And it'll be my task uh, to touch upon some of these petitions this morning, as many as we can, in our limited amount of time. But before we do, there is one matter I'd like to revisit briefly before we proceed. One of the benefits of getting together with other pastors is I'm able to bounce ideas off of them and get their input and 
come away either feeling shattered, I've been completely uh, barking up the wrong tree or chasing down the wrong rabbit holes, but sometimes I walk away uh, more persuaded, more confident than ever before. Well, there was one thing that I'd ever to um, say to you last week in, in reference to Jesus' words concerning his apostles, calling them, those whom you gave me out of the world. He says, yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, let me say this uh, first. I'm always glad when people in this church give me pushback, when I change my opinion on a matter and present a new view to you. Some of you didn't know it was a new view I presented, but it was. If you've been around here a long while and know some of the ways I've uh, presented texts of Scripture, Um, I believe that to spend the years I've been with you never changing a single opinion about anything would not be a good thing. It would be a sign, I think, of spiritual laziness, maybe a sign even of pride that I think I know it all. I got all my theological ducks all in a row and uh, my biblical understandings are perfect in every regard. Well, I know my understandings are not perfect in every regard. I know there's much that needs modification and correction. I just don't know what, where those needs for modifications exist or else I'd modify. I'd change. I'd like to bring my understandings alongside what Scripture is teaching. Um, but I'm not omniscient about these things. We just move along as we can. And um, I don't expect everybody in this church to just swallow down everything I say or rubber stamp every new idea. Even if I present them as new and improved, you don't necessarily need to agree that they're new and improved at all. You have perfect right to maintain my old view if you'd like. Um, even though I've changed that view, you can hold it. Or something else entirely different. You see, our unity in Christ does not consist in perfect agreement about everything. But I did get some pushback last week, at least disappointment that I changed my opinion. And um, the change in opinion is from seeing these words as referring to something of an eternal pre-time decree, uh, sometimes presented as a covenant of redemption, that the members of the Trinity had with one another, in which the Father gave a people to the Son, and the Son covenanted to come into the world and live and die for that people. And ultimately, um, that's what Jesus is talking about. Uh, They were yours, and you gave them to me in this eternal covenant of redemption. Or uh, they were... uh, they were. Uh, let me get the, the language here. He says, they, um, um, yours they were, you, you gave them to me. This is an eternal thing. Um, but it seems to me that's just not what this passage is referring to. And it's particularly so in the light of the previous passage. I didn't present it to you last week, but I think it would be good to refer you to it. It's in John 6.37. It's a familiar passage to many of you. It's where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And the language is very similar to this. These are the people you you gave me, Jesus says in 17.6. The people whom you gave me out of this world. Jesus says in 6.37, all that you give me, but not just give me, but continue to give me. It's a present tense verb. 
words. It's called a present active indicative. It's stuff that's not going on in eternity. It's stuff that's going on in time. As Jesus is preaching, as Jesus is teaching, and there are people that do not believe, there are people who reject his word, they will not come to him, they're arguing with him, they're saying, we have Moses as the one we look to, we're not looking to you. Uh, He gave us bread from heaven, we don't care who you are, even though Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Through the ministry of the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, God is active through the Word, giving a people to Jesus. And how does He give a people to Jesus? Through the power of a new birth. It's the power of the Spirit regenerating hearts. Bringing people to see their need of this Jesus who stands before them in the gospel. And so the people who were given to Jesus are the people who came to him and believed, having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They're born of God, born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. They're born of God and they come to believe. These are the ones whom the Father gave Jesus out of the world. They're given in time through the proclamation of the word of truth, calling people out of the world to come to Jesus by faith, by the power of the Spirit's work in regeneration. I think that's meaningful to understand that it's in the ministry of God's word that God is working. God is working. Now, we know he's working, executing an eternal plan and purpose. We know that. But the point I think of Jesus is saying, he's working now through the word, calling out a people. Now, the fact that they were yours and you gave them to me, I think speaks to the fact that their identity was that of sons of the covenant God made with Israel. These were Jewish people. They were the elect remnant called out of the world from the Jewish nation to form this apostolic band through whom the new covenant would be enacted. And the prologue says that he came to his own people and they received him not. But as many as received him, he gave to be the, gave the authority to become the children of God to those that believe on his name who were born. Of, not of the will of man, but of, the, but of God. God's working through the ministry of the word. Even when people aren't believing, when people are opposing Jesus, his confidence is, there are those who are being given to him. There are those, Father, whom you are working in, through the word, by the Spirit, bringing them to faith in Christ. This calling out of a people from the nation of Israel, I think is also pictured for us in John chapter 10. That's the passage where Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd. And, you know, when you read that passage, I think I've brought it up to your attention before, but I'll I'll try to do it again. There's something of a mixing of the metaphors. (laughs) In other words, what Jesus says in, in one place, the beginning of the passage, is that the one that goes through the gate is uh, the shepherd of the sheep. And he's saying, I'm the shepherd, and I'm going through the gate. But then later on, he says, I am the gate. But wait a minute, Jesus, are you going through the gate, or are you the gate? He says both. But each in its own turn. Because you see, the word for gate and the word for sheepfold are the same words that could also mean, I'm sorry, through the door or the gate or the, or the, the sheepfold could also be used of the temple gates and of the court. 
when the people came to worship. And that's where Jesus is. He's gone up into the temple, the Jewish temple. And he's gone up to go right through the gates. Doesn't come up in some subversive secret way. Right before the nation. To do what? To be the shepherd of the sheep. To call out his sheep by name. That's what he says he does. He calls out his sheep by name. And you know what? They follow him. And you know what he does with them? He leads them out. So Jesus comes right to the center of Israelite life and worship in their temple. And he calls out a people from the nation, from the remnant that God has given to him. That through the word they hear his voice. They hear his voice and they follow him. They come out. This way they're given to Christ. And then he leads them out. And no sooner does he lead him out, you know what he does? He says, now i got my own, sh- my own sheepfold. Because you see, there's a new temple. There's a new temple. And there's a new gateway into the new temple of God. And that's through Jesus, who is the temple himself. He's also the shepherd. And he's also the one um, through whom life is given. And uh, God's people find um, their, their access to God. And they find this gracious, faithful Good shepherd who gives eternal life to the sheep as he gives up his life for them. And so that's the picture that you have of a people brought out from the nation of Israel. Those who belong to God in terms of the old covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai now become, through Jesus, part of a new people, a new covenant people whose uh, prime, prime characteristic is not that we're born of Abraham's seed, they're believers in Jesus. They belong to him. Yours they were. You've given them to me. So these are the ones for whom this prayer is prayed. The apostles. The apostles who were Jewish. Old covenant people. Who now the Father has given to Jesus. Out from the world to form a new nation. A new people. Not twelve patriarchs now. Twelve apostles. Who would form this new people of God. So I thought I'd say those things just to kind of reinforce the assertions I made so that not just assertions, but you'd understand their assertions, I think, firmly rooted in the very things that we find in the Gospel of John. But now the petitions. And my time is even shorter than before. I mentioned that there were these petitions having to do with safety, security, or security, and also petitions... They refer to solidarity, strength, and sanctity. I think we might get to the first three if we hurry along. First of all, safety and security. The words simply mean he guards us. He protects his people. Jesus had already said that all that the Father had given him should what? Come to him. And he says, they that come to me, I will not, never, not in any way ever cast out. In this passage, he tells us all that the Father had given him. I'm sorry, in chapter 6, he would lose nothing. And he would raise them up at the last day. But now we come to chapter 17, and, and the Jesus who had said, I will never, ever, ever cast them out. Who said, of them who come to me, I will lose nothing, and I will raise them up at the last day. The Jesus who had given that ironclad rule, 
Never, ever, ever will I cast you out. I will raise you up at the last day. Now tells us there's one exception. There's one exception to an otherwise ironclad rule. Verse 12. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Okay, thus far, Jesus, you're keeping your promise. He said, None of them are going to be lost. I'll never, ever, ever cast them out. And yet there's one exception. Judas. Except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There is one exception to an otherwise ironclad rule. I will never, ever, ever, under no circumstances, not at any time, cast you out. But no matter how much I say, ironclad rule, only one exception. I'm certain there are people here, or maybe in other places, would hear a sermon like this who would simply say, Well, if there was one exception, I'm certain I'm the second. I could tell you your name's not Judas. I could tell you that there's nothing in the scriptures about you as there was about Judas. I could tell you you're not that important. <laughs> None of us are. That scripture would specify one other exception, and it happens to be of all of the billions of people in the world, of all of the people that have come to faith in Christ, it would be you? I don't think so. You see, the fact is, the exception proves the rule. Jesus could have said, I've guarded them, but you know, loss is inevitable. They've already had one go down the tubes, and so who knows how many others will also follow. That's not what he says. He says, one exception that the scriptures might be fulfilled, and he doesn't speak of another. You're not the second exception to the rule. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and he that comes to me I will never, ever, ever cast out. Can I make that any clearer? I mean, there are people who have these major problems with assurance that just don't seem to get it. Jesus means exactly what he says. If you've come to him, he will not cast you out. He will keep you. He will preserve you. He's praying, interceding for his disciples and all who eventually come to faith through their word that they would be guarded, that they would be kept. We will not be cast out. But yet it is also true that it's essential that we pray to this end. Prayer is essential to the achievement of the ends ordained by God. Now God says lots of things in the Bible. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do the next thing and the next thing. But he says, I will be inquired of by the house of Israel. I'll have you to pray for these things. The things I promise to give you will things you also must pray for. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and shall be open to you. Prayer is essential to the achievement of the ends ordained by God. So Jesus prays for their safety, their protection in the midst of an evil and a dangerous world. And we should also be praying for the protection of God's people, for our preservation, that we would be kept. 
Just as Jesus prayed, so shall we. He should be the example for our prayers that we should not be just taking it for granted. Oh yeah, everybody's going to be saved. Everybody who comes to Christ will be kept. Pray for it. Seek God for the very thing he promises you to be pleading before him. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Now you, Father, continue to guard them. Continue to protect them. Again, these are matters of inseparable operations of the members of the triune God. Each has a role to play. And Jesus confidently prays the Father to be all to them that he's been to them as he leaves them now. Again, the world's a dangerous place. Like our Lord, we should be in prayer for ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ that each of us would continue to know the powerful, all-sufficient hand of God protecting and preserving us as his people. And it's precisely because the world is such a dangerous place and the need for protection of of God himself is so great that Jesus also focuses upon two great needs that the saints have as they journey through this dangerous world. What do we need if we would be kept and protected? Well, we need to be unified and we need to be joyful. There needs to be unity and joy or as you have it in my outline, there needs to be solidarity and strength. If we would be kept and protected, if we would persevere and continue on in faith and faithfulness, we need one another. We're not isolated people going through life with the stuff of our own independent sufficiency. So Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world but they're in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, this is verse 11. He says, keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one as we are one. It's interesting. You know, Jesus, of course, his relationship to the Father is the great example of love in chapter 14 and the love that they have to one another now is now going to come to his people that as they love one another, they will love us and we will love them and we will love one another in the church. He's the mark of what love is and he's also the mark of unity. What we see in the Trinity, what we see of the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we are to be replicating the unity of the Father and the Son in our relationship to one another in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says it's because the world is such a dangerous place and they're still in it. I'm coming to you, Father, requesting their safety and their protection. Keep them that they may be one as we are one. The end of their protection is their unity. Keep them that they may be one, as we are one. It's the safety and protection of the covenant people is to counter our natural desires for individual honors. You know, we have the sense that uh, if I get there, it's going to be by the stuff of my own strength, it's by the dint of my own power. Jesus is praying against the gold alone spirit 
that maybe some of you know the, the poem Invictus by, I think his last name is Henley. Where he prays, or he says, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquer- unconquerable soul. It makes not, um, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. See, the saints are aware that's such a lie. That's such a distortion of reality. That's of mankind in its own pride. The saint is well aware that his safety is found not in himself, but in his God. And God uses means for our protection and our perseverance, and that involves his people. By one spirit, we're all baptized, I'm sorry, yes, into one body. We're all baptized into one body. We've been made to drink the same spiritual drink and eat the same spiritual food. We need God's people. We're members in a body. We need the ministry and functions that others render to us for our spiritual well-being, as well as that the body might run as it should. Unity is the mate of protection. We're not to be alone. We need bound together. The ties of a common life and a common fellowship, a life that's given through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us and among us as His people. If we cut ourselves off from the brethren, we cut ourselves off from the God-ordained means of our safety and our security. We're to be helpers to one another, exhorting one another, teaching one another, modeling godly behavior for one another, submitting to one another, humbling ourselves before one another, seeking to strengthen one another, to restore one another, to engage in ministries that we have all those passages in the New Testament that speak of the life of the believer together in the body, one anothering each other for the good of the whole. Keep them that they may be one, united in worship, united in faith, united in fellowship, united in ministry, united in persevering faith and faithfulness. See, Jesus unites our safety to our solidarity, He unites our protection to our unity. Keep them that they may be one. But not only did Jesus pray that they would be kept and protected and guarded, that their unity would be expressed, but also that their joy would be known. But not just their joy, his joy, his joy. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you. And these things, and he's probably referring to these prayers, these petitions I'm offering to you in the presence of these disciples, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's something about joy that lends itself to endurance, that lends itself to continuance in faith and faithfulness. Think about what it was for Jesus to do what Hebrews 12 tells us he did, endure the cross. 
despising the shame, to be seated at the right hand of God. The first part of that passage tells us it was for the joy that was set before him. If all Jesus saw were his sorrows, if all Jesus saw were his miseries, if all Jesus saw were the hateful looks and scowls and crown of thorns and the mockings and the cruelty and the smitings and the scourgings, and he knew nothing of joy, he would have wilted under that pressure. He would have simply bowed down under that weight. But what made his work a work that was not weighted down, but filled with exuberance, was the reality of the goal in mind, the end for which he came, the bringing of many sons to glory, the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The joy of the triumph, the victory over sin, over death, over Satan. The victory that would usher in his kingdom. The joy of returning to his father. The joy of bringing many to faith and many to glory. Joy was the principal motivating emotion to continue on in the face of sorrow, in the face of difficulty. Again, we're back to Nehemiah chapter 8. I mentioned it last week. But Nehemiah told a weeping people who were filled with regrets and recriminations and convictions for all that they had done against God that warranted the Babylonian captivity. And it's like, Nehemiah, you haven't told us half of it. We've gotten just a small portion of what our sins really deserve. And man, you can just begin to hang your head and say, there's no hope. My sins are too great. The weight is too great. And Nehemiah says, lift up your heads. Get out of this morass of self-pity. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We encumber ourselves with weakness when we met the miserable sinner mentality. I believe we're all miserable sinners, but I believe that there's a grace that abounds or superabounds where our sins abound. And whatever is wretched in ourselves, whatever is miserable within ourselves. Here's the point of it, folks. It's more than compensated for in Jesus. More than compensated for in Jesus. For years I sat under one of the most convicting ministries, I think, in the English-speaking world. And there were times I felt about that big in the face of a sermon that I heard. But you know, I never lost the joy of my salvation. I never lost the sense of a reconciled father. Because I had in my mind the words of the hymn. And I don't remember which one it is in the Trinity hymnal, but it has these lines. I know my sin in all its badness. Now if all you knew was your sin in all its badness, you might as well just give up. I'm just a wretched, miserable, helpless, good-for-nothing sinner. I know my sin in all its badness. Well, that's fine. Know it in all its badness. But that's not all you're supposed to know, Christian. The next line is, but also Him that sets me free. 
to take your sin and all its badness, collect it together, put it in one side of the scales. It isn't worthy to be compared with Him who sets us free. He more than compensates for all the garbage that our, our lives consist in. His goodness is given to us. His virtue is given to us. His power and love is given to us. Christ is made unto us wisdom from God, sanctification, righteousness, redemption, Paul says. If this is what we have in Him, we don't lack a thing. We have everything we need in Him. And not in yourself, granted. It's not in you. But it is in Him. Paul saw his ministry in 2 Corinthians 1.24 as being one of being a helper to your joy, he tells the Corinthians. And he connects his being a helper to their joy where they're standing firm in the faith. Folks, if we're going to stand firm in the faith, we need people to be helpers of our joy. Not people that just go around looking to investigate, well, what, what sin can I find in you? And call it to your attention. Look in the mirror. Look and see what you are. Now, some people think that's their ministry. Go around and accuse people. Go around and convict people. Paul says that's not his ministry. His ministry is to be a helper of people's joy. Wouldn't you like to spend your life doing that? Being a helper of people's joy? Well, that's what we're called to do for one another. It's because, you see, the Christian life, if it's anything, it's primarily a joy-filled life. Jesus could say to people being persecuted for righteousness' sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Wait a minute, Jesus, don't you understand what we're going through? He says, yes, I know fully what you're going through. And yet he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. A joyless, joyless life is indeed itself a trial. It's a burden. It's fatiguing. It's depressing. Why get out of bed? If all you can think of is how bad things are and how bad you are and how bad the world is and there's nothing good to be found. There's everything good to be found in the gospel. In our Lord Jesus, it is good news. And it brings us into a relationship to God where He, His goodness is revealed. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Joy gives life to our souls. It gives power to our witness. It ministers hope, perseverance, endurance and faith and faithfulness. Jesus prays that my joy may be in them. He prays that way. Should you not be praying such things for yourself? May the joy of Jesus ministered to us by the Holy Spirit be in us, encouraging us, lifting our hearts and souls, helping us to live in this life of misery and woe through this arduous journey with total delight and abandonment in the God of our salvation. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. 
I know some of you, when you think of Thanksgiving, it's always still, I mean, some of us constitutionally are different. People are optimists, people who are pessimists, glass half empty, glass half full, fill. Uh, I took up the, the idea of, of, of a couple of days ago starting to do a daily devotional on the subject of Thanksgiving. And I'm hoping to take it through at least, at least to Thanksgiving Day. Because I'll tell you something, folks, it's not, it's not easy. It's much easier to see the glass half empty. It's much easier to gripe and complain because there's so much in life to gripe and complain about. But the reality is we are encompassed with the mercies of God. They're all around us. And if we're not focused in upon those realities, we'll let the things of the world just drag us down. Rob us of our joy. Rob us of our peace. Rob us of our comforts. Rob us of our birthright as God's people. I hope I get to Thanksgiving having something daily different to thank God about. Not repeat myself on any given day. And if I get that far, I'm just going to continue on and see how far I can go. Because it's good for my soul to be a thankful, praise-filled, joyful Christian and not just stuck in the mud of my own despondence, the soul of despond that we so easily allow ourselves to just slip into. May God be pleased to help us to see the prayers of Jesus and what they're praying, what he's praying for, and pray these things for ourselves. And we would pray for our unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we would pray for the joy of the Lord to be our strength, to be ever with us, encouraging us as the people of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can contemplate these realities and we pray that each of us can make them more and more our own. That we would, each of us, designate ourselves to be helpers of one another's joy and seeking to so live with one another that unity becomes the pervasive theme. That even when there are differences of opinion and and, and um, matters that we can't fully agree with that would never fracture the things that have brought us together and the things that ever should be keeping us together. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we come to the supper. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.